Our reading tonight is going to be in John's Gospel and chapter 19. Thank you for coming. We're glad that you're here. Just this one portion that we're going to read, and I would remind you that what we're reading about is an eyewitness account of the cross of Jesus Christ, the most central event in all of history, and it is being written by the Apostle John, who was standing there. He saw it happen. Now, notice verse 28 of John's Gospel, chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The construction of the Leaning Tower of Pisa began on August the 14th, 1173. Nobody seems to know who the architect was. Nobody wanted to take responsibility, I suppose. And uh, it actually went through um, three different stages of construction over a period of more than several hundred years, I would say. It's approximately 185 feet tall, and most people know that it is leaning, but most people don't realize it is also curved at the top. It was an effort in the second phase of construction to, to try and straighten the tower out, if you will. What had happened was they had built the tower in a spot where the one side that fell down, that started to compress, started to depress into the ground, was on softer ground than the other side. And so the foundation being the same all the way around, it began to tilt. It wasn't until just 2008, the month of May, that engineers now say, now I'm a person who has a fear of structural height, so I'm still not going up the tower, no matter who these engineers are. But they now say, for the first time in its several hundred year history, it's no longer sinking. Small comfort when you look at the tower. If you've seen pictures of it, maybe some of you have been there. We're not here just to talk about something like that tonight. I want to draw your attention to a work that was completed 2,000 years ago in a single day. And this is something that will provide you, if you are willing to trust it, a foundation that will not only stand you in good stead for life and for time, but a foundation that will be good for you for the endless ages of eternity, a finished work. And we have read tonight this tremendous word from Jesus on the cross. It is finished. It was really just a single word in, in the original language. Finished. Done. That's the message of the gospel tonight that we are preaching. What was it that he was referring to when he said, it is finished? Was it the fact that his short 33-year life was just about to come to an end? Well, it couldn't have been that. Because if you read the rest of the story and you go to chapter 20, you'll find that he rose again from the dead. And so it wasn't that life here on earth that was finished because he would rise again. Was it his unique and authoritative teaching that was finished? No, because when you come to the book of Acts, you find out that men continued to preach 
all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And so his teaching wasn't finished. It would continue to be taught and elaborated upon as he would give them authority. What was it that was finished? What was he referring to when from the cross he cried, it is finished? Was a man's cruelty was over finally? Was this the culmination of it? Would it never erupt again against anybody representing God? No, no. The Holocaust never would have happened if that were true. Was it the presence of sin in the world that was finally eradicated and removed? No, because even after he died, they would lie about him rising from the dead and so on. And sin would continue and his followers would be persecuted in the centuries that would follow his death here at the cross. No, there's something far deeper to be explored and understood in these words. And I want to explore them just for a few moments tonight. Because if you were to grasp, if you were to come into the good of what the Lord Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Seven recorded statements of the Lord Jesus that he said while hanging on the cross at Calvary. This is the sixth one, a significant one. If you were to come to understand tonight what it means that it's finished, your life would never be the same. Your eternity would be radically different than it is at this moment in time if you're not saved. I want you to think, first of all, of the realization that's found in this word, because it is important for you and I to realize that one of the greatest historical evidences that the Bible is not just an ordinary book. In fact, it is far more than that. The Bible is a book that is God-breathed. It is a book that has the very authority of heaven behind it. One of the greatest historical evidences is the fulfilled prophecies that are found in this book. So as you read through the gospel records, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you are going to read words like these repeatedly, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That those Old Testament prophecies, those men of God who pointed forward and said, this is going to happen, just go to the book of Isaiah and read chapter 53 and link how many things in those 12 verses point forward to the Lord Jesus in his life. In fact, I don't even have to go outside this chapter, do I? There are at least three that are fulfilled right in John chapter 19. Go back with me to Psalms 22, verse 18. This is what we read. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. That's what David said. Writing, he didn't understand likely the full significance of what he was saying. But God inspiring his writing... God breathing his words and giving David the pen to write what God would have him write. He said, they parted my garments among them, cast lots upon my vesture. Now just go, just a few verses before we, where we began to read. Verse 24, they said, here were these Roman soldiers. Do you think they'd ever picked up Psalm 22? Do you think they'd ever looked at it and said, huh, this would be, this would be ironic? They had likely never read it. They'd likely never laid eyes on the words that David had written so many centuries before. Notice what it says. They said, therefore, among themselves, concerning his garment, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Then notice this. John adds this, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they parted my raiment among them and for my vesture, they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Notice 
Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar, sour wine to drink. Well, we read verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. What did they give him? Sour wine. Vinegar. Now, notice the third one. Some of the instructions that were given to the Israelites many, many centuries before, back in Exodus chapter 12, before they were a nation in their own land, they were being brought out of Egypt. A very fascinating story. It really is the center point of that book of Exodus. When the Lord would pass through the land and there would be a a lamb that would be slain and they would take the blood of that lamb and they would put the blood upon the doorpost and on the lintel and in that house they would be safe when the Lord himself passed through the land that night and destroyed the firstborn in every other house that didn't have the blood but one of the instructions that was given just remember this that that Passover lamb was a picture that would point forward to the Lord Jesus so many things about it that are pictures of him in fact Paul even said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, even Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. So this is not some fanciful idea that we have. This is what the scriptures teach. There was one instruction that they were given, and it was this. There's not one bone of that animal, of that lamb that's to be broken. Not one. Notice what John 19 says. They went to the the thief on the one side of the Lord Jesus, and they broke his legs. They went to the thief on the other side and they broke his legs. The idea was this, that without strength in their legs, they wouldn't be able to push themselves up on the cross and they would die quicker. The reason that was important to them was to satisfy the Jews because there was a feast the next day and they didn't want them to die. Imagine the hypocrisy and self-righteousness of these people who would take the innocent Jesus of Nazareth and crucify him on trumped up charges Things that were false, false witness, and they would crucify him. And then, and then, in their religion would say, it's not right for a man to die on the feast day. This is a, it's a holy day, after all. Look at us. And so God had timed this just perfectly. So here's thief number one, broken legs. Thief number two, broken legs. They come to the Lord Jesus, and miracle of miracles, he's dead already. No need to break his legs. Again, here's a soldier, a centurion, walking by, and he, he looks up at him and says, oh, he's dead already. No need to break his legs. Do you think he had ever read Exodus chapter 12? Do you think he had any understanding? Little did he know that as he walked by and took that spear, and one callous act just went like this, and tore through the side of the Lord Jesus with that spear. And forthwith, the Bible says, there came out blood and water. Little did he know that by not breaking his legs, he was actually fulfilling the very picture, the type of Exodus 12. And this is what John says. These things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. The death of Christ on the cross is recorded in the Gospels in the New Testament is the central event of history. And in it, so many prophecies are fulfilled. Did you know, by the way, there are approximately 300 prophecies, just a little more than 300 prophecies, specific prophecies about the Lord Jesus that were fulfilled exactly to the letter during his lifetime in just 33 years. This central event, Calvary, so many of those things were brought to to pass, fulfilled. I want to tell you something tonight. Christianity is no accident. The Bible is no mere random book. 
It's not just the compiled writings of men. It is the result of God's message of salvation reaching hearts. This is what Christianity is. The real, empowered message of the gospel, an eternal message from God that is reaching into the hearts of mankind. And entire civilizations have been altered and radically changed. Lives have been rescued from sin and have been changed in a way that no rehabilitation could ever have done. No man-made means of seeking to rescue men from the lifestyle of sin could ever do. The gospel message does, and it changes men, and it changes women. There are people in this meeting tonight, as small as it might be, we're glad you're here, but I want to tell you something. These lives that you're looking at would not be the same if it wasn't for this message. If it wasn't for the cross. If it wasn't for the rescuing, delivering power of God through the gospel. This is a message that is tremendously unique and powerful. And as you go through the Old Testament now, you're going to see God's plan of redemption as it's, being pointed for, as it's pointing forward to the cross. And all through the Old Testament, all these offerings, all these sacrifices, all the altars that were made, whether it was the tabernacle, the temple, or even before that with Noah and Abraham and so on, all of these different altars, all of these different animals slain, they're pointing forward to one who would ultimately fulfill them all. You know the lesson? that we're getting through the repetition of those sacrifices? It's great. It's a great lesson. Over and over and over again. Just the Day of Atonement, that most significant day that you read about in Leviticus 16. Year after year, you say, it was just, well, it was once a year. It wasn't that often. But as the centuries rolled... Year after year after year after year, hundreds of times. You know what we're being taught by all of that? None of that was good enough to take away sin. When I come to the book of Hebrews, and I come to chapter 10, these are the words that I read. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, now he points back to the Old Testament and every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Do you know what the Hebrew writer is saying? He's pointing back to John 19 and 30 and he's listening can you tune your ears now to hear the words again from the Lord Jesus? It is finished. And the Hebrew writer is saying all of those things that took place in the Old Testament, they have been stopped. You know why? Because God has looked at the cross now and he's looked at all of those Old Testament sacrifices. He said, they're not enough. They're not enough. And God, the, the righteous judge, looks down now at the cross. He looks right at the Lord Jesus and all of the suffering for sin that he bore. And he listens to the words that came from his lips. It is finished. And God looks at the cross and says, it's enough. Unlike all of those Old Testament sacrifices, this is enough. I want to tell you tonight, not only is there a realization that needs to come to you and I in this, but there is a remedy in this word. Because when I come to... John 19 and 30, it is finished. I learned that the suffering for sin was completed. There's no question in the minds of any intelligent Bible reader that sin has resulted 
and a tremendous harvest of suffering in this world. Just think of Earth's first mother. After she and Adam had sinned, she was told, you will bring forth children and that will be marked by constant sorrow. Now, in case you think that wasn't fulfilled, just, just now look into the home life of Adam and Eve. They had two boys. One boy killed the other. What tremendous sorrow and suffering came with sin right from the very beginning. Since that time, the history of humanity has been intertwined with immeasurable suffering because of sin. Our world tonight, we've never been in a world where we had more access to up-to-date current event and news information. If you, if you bore down into that, and I'm not telling you to, but if you bore down past all the news about North Korea and the EU and Brexit and Trump and all of those things, and you start to look down into some of the local stories, you're going to read about families being destroyed. You're going to read about lives that are ruined. Whether it's the Chatham Daily News, the Toronto Sun, the Toronto Star, the Globe, it doesn't matter. You know the message that's being screened from our headlines today? Sin has brought immeasurable suffering to this world. There seems to be no end to it. And just when you think you've seen everything, another headline comes across your path and you say, I can't imagine such a thing. I can't imagine the suffering those people must be going through. The innocent victims of that crime. I can't imagine it. Now I want you to come away from all of that now. And I want you to step before the cross tonight. And I want you to look at the Lord Jesus. A man that had never sinned. In fact, one of the thieves, one of those criminals hanging beside him, looked at him and said, this man has never done anything wrong. A man who had never, ever sowed sin in his life and had no harvest of sin to reap. No harvest of suffering was his. And he is there on that cross. Why? He is suffering in the place of sinners. He himself is bearing the totality of that harvest. That wrath, that judgment of God against sin is being poured out upon him. I want you just to think of what Psalm 88 tells us again. This is another prophetic utterance concerning the Lord Jesus. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness in the deeps. Your wrath, your judgment, that is, lies hard upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. But that cross, a sinless man, the only sinless man, was experiencing the ultimate terror of suffering that sin alone could bring. John was standing by the cross, but Peter wasn't too far away. Many years later, Peter would pick up his pen and he would crystallize what happened at the cross this way. Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So when he cried, it is finished. It was just like this. 
that storm of judgment that was swirling around this world and hovering over every individual in this world, that storm of judgment now has been borne by the Lord Jesus at the cross, and that storm can be passed for you. What a wonderful thing to, to step out after the violence of a summer thunderstorm and just look off into the distance and see the sun beginning to rise again just peering through the clouds and perhaps a rainbow and you know that the storm is past it's gone the wind has died down the lightning's no longer flashing the thunder's no longer pounding the rain is no longer drilling down into the earth the storm is gone i want to tell you something the night that i was saved i just remember if there was one thing an 11 year old boy was terrified of it was experiencing the storm of judgment the wrath of god and I, I didn't come into the full realization of this that night. I was just, just about 11, not quite. I didn't come into that realization that night. But I came to appreciate in the days that were following as I sat and listened to the gospel preached. And as I sat and listened to men preach the gospel. And they preached about the wrath of God. And they re would read from Revelation 20. And they would talk about a great white throne of judgment. There was something that was thrilling my soul, I admit. I admit it was mean at the time, but it was important to me. That storm of judgment will never fall on me. It fell on him. And I had come into the good of Romans 5 and 6, that Christ died in the place of the ungodly. But I want you just to think, too, that what it means is this, that God's legal claims against your sin were met at the cross. You see, sin has put us all in a position where we are naturally, the way we are born, we are guilty before God. Listen to this statement of Paul. Paul is making a legal argument in Romans. When he comes to chapter 3, he says this. He's kind of summed it all up. He's looked at, at all different nationalities. He looked at Jews and Gentiles. He's looked at different lifestyles. And he's kind of characterized them all. And he's, he's made a an argument that can't be assailed against. And he sums it all up saying this, now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. No arguments. You stand condemned in the court of God and all the world may become guilty before God. Do you see where that has you and I tonight? As far as God is concerned, we stand entirely condemned. Our mouths stopped. No ability in ourselves to correct that. None. This is the great problem that many people have when they hear God's message preached. Here are some of the arguments that are fairly common. Some people will say, well, I'm not that bad. And on behalf of all of us, thank you for not being that bad. However... The problem with that is this. God's standard is total perfection. So you have total perfection over here, and you have not that bad over here. How's that argument holding up? God is a holy God. His standard is no sin whatsoever. Not one sin will ever enter heaven. Not one sin can stand in his presence. His holiness is such. And we need to adjust our thinking to understand the character of God. So the whole idea of I'm not that bad really doesn't work, does it? It's kind of a moot argument. Another thing that some people 
say, and I would just add to that this, the real question is this. God's standard is perfection. You say you're not that bad. The question is this. Are you that good? That's what God is looking for. And Paul says, no. No, we've all sinned. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. But there's another argument that people use. And uh, this is one that I won't accuse my kids of ever having used this kind of an argument to get out of uh, guilt, but I'm sure other people's kids have. I'm not as bad as other people. Well, that would be great if you were trying to get into a university where there was a ranking system and uh, you were just trying to beat the rest of the pack. You know, they've got 100 spots and there's 500 people vying for it and you just want to be high enough up that you'll get, you know, spot number 98, right? But the problem with that is this, how you rank against others has absolutely no relevance at all. You are guilty before God. You're condemned before God. Another thing that people will often say, and this this is often the case when people start coming to hear the gospel or coming to church, they'll say, uh, I'll try harder to be good from now on. I've really messed it up until now, and uh, I've kind of got a past behind me I'm not proud of, and I think all of us would, would admit to that. Um, but from now on, I'm going to try and be better. The only problem with that is, what about all that sin in your past? God does require that which was past. How can you erase all of that? That still leaves you condemned, even if from this moment forward, you could, you could go sinless from this day, which... By the way, you can't, and if you think you can, I challenge you to try it. You can't do it. But even if you could, you've still got all this sin in your past that somehow needs to be dealt with. God is a holy God, and he doesn't just sweep things under the rug. They have to be dealt with. This is a very common argument that a lot of people use too, and they say that uh, I've done the best I can. I'm really thankful for people in society that are doing the best they can. It does make for a better society. But when it comes to getting into heaven, when it comes to salvation, is that really good enough based on what you know about God? Perfection? Absolute holiness? Total righteousness? Is the best you can good enough? And by the way, how would you, how would you ever know if it was good enough? Like, would you just be hoping it works out? People who are saved are not people who are hoping it's work, it will work out. People who are saved are people who are absolutely certain. They are resting firm on the foundation of God's word, and they know that they have eternal life. The truth is this. None of our human ideas and arguments matter. What we don't like to admit is this, that God is the one who will make the call. This is God's heaven. This is God's salvation. This is God's universe, and you and I are God's creation, and as such, we are accountable to God. And this is God's call, not our call. And we can make all of the arguments we want. I've just given you a few that are common, but there might be a a thousand other arguments that you could throw up before God. There's going to come a day when all men are going to stand before God, and all the arguments they might have now, which they shouldn't, they won't have. There's no response at a great white throne of judgment to the great judge that sits on that throne. I just want you to consider the words of James 
in James 2 and verse 10. Whosoever shall keep the whole law. Wow. Now you've attained to the standard, James says. Now you've reached the top. You've kept the whole law. And God looks at you and he says, that's wonderful. You've made it. But what, James says, what if he just offends in one minor point? James says he's guilty of them all. Now, I don't have time to do it, but you could actually go through the Ten Commandments and you could demonstrate that to be true. Logically, I'm not going to do that tonight. But James is saying this, it doesn't matter. One infraction, this is the standard that God wants. So let's come back to the words that we've read tonight. At the cross, when the Lord Jesus cried, it is finished, he was saying that he had stepped into the place of guilty sinners. He himself, the only one who had ever attained to the standard of God, the only one who was absolutely holy, who was absolutely righteous. And talk about fulfilling the scriptures. He fulfilled the law entirely. Not one part of the law was left unfulfilled by the Lord Jesus in his life. He pursued, he said, your law is within my heart. And this was something that was the very pursuit of his life, was the fulfillment of the law. And he not only didn't sin, he couldn't sin. And so the Lord Jesus now is hanging on that cross. And what had happened was this. The innocent, impeccable, the perfect man had stepped now into the place of guilty sinners. And he's standing there before God and saying, I'll take the punishment. Give it to me. I will bear that punishment. And what we read tonight was this. When that punishment had finally rolled its course across the Lord Jesus in the darkness of the cross, the Lord Jesus cried from that, from that cross, it's finished. The guilt is all gone. The sin has all been taken care of. The work is all done. I just want you to come to my next point. There is rest in this word. You see, sin has caused suffering, which he has borne. Guilt, which he has borne. But it's put us into debt. Just think of your sin as a debt. There's no possible way that you could ever pay it back. I, I don't know how else to illustrate this. I have a friend here in town, and I won't tell you the name of the business because you'll all know it. Um, I'll just tell you these details. He bought the business a couple of years ago, and when he bought it, it was a very profitable business. Had good cash flow, good revenue stream, and uh, it was a great business. He had a partner, and uh, between the two of them, they had enough money to keep it floating and plenty of money coming in. His partner, who either has a crystal ball or knew something that he didn't know, sold out. And then something changed, and this is the status of his business right now, okay? His business costs him $9,000 a month. $9,000 a month. He needs to make those payments for the next 120 months, that's 10 years. Now, you think that's a lot of money. Well, there's lots of businesses that are paying $9,000 a month in expenses, but they're bringing in a lot of money, a lot of money too. The problem with his business is it brings in $0 a year. I can't give you more details. Just the point is this, he's in big trouble. 
he can never pay that back. He looked at me and he said, what do you think? I said, I think you're bankrupt. <laughs> I think you're in big trouble. You know what? As far as God is concerned, as far as your sin is concerned, you're bankrupt. Your debt, your mountain of debt is so incredibly high, you can never pay it back. Now, I want you to listen to the word that the Lord Jesus said, because this is the actual word that he cried in the Greek language. Tetelestai. One word. You know what that word was? When you get a receipt, now this doesn't happen anymore because we don't do this, but I actually have one of these stamps at home, and it's when you stamp it, it says paid. That was the word that would be written at the bottom of a bill when it was paid. There's no debt here. It's paid. Tetelestai. And when he cried finished, what he was saying is this. That debt of sin is paid. Entirely paid. Not one red penny could you contribute to that debt now. The Lord Jesus has paid that debt entirely. Completely. So what is your response going to be to this? Because you really have two options. You can... You can continue doing your best to make God happy with you and to please God and to live your life in a way that God will be impressed with you and somehow you'll gain favor with God. And you'll never get to heaven that way. You'll never get salvation that way. You'll actually be telling God by doing that, you know what, it's nice that the Lord Jesus died. That's a nice story in John 19. And uh, it's a nice reading. And it's quite the sacrifice he made. But I don't need that. Can you imagine the level of insult that that must be to the God of heaven? He has given everything. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, to pay your debt of sin. And you're saying, no, no, I'll whittle away at it over here with a few good works. I'll try and muster up some filthy rags. Where, where I need gold, I'll, I'll get some dust together here. And maybe one day I'll have enough and you'll be happy with it. And so many people are living their lives that way thinking that somehow that's the currency in which God deals and God is saying, no, the debt has all been paid. The work has all been done. All he wants you to do is this, take him at his word. What's the word? Finished. Just trust him. Trust him and you can be saved for eternity. That's the message of the gospel. It is a work that's done, a work that can be trusted, that can be relied upon. It was not, it's not sinking sand, it's solid. And you can trust the work of salvation, the work of Christ tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you tonight and we're thankful. Thankful for your word and for the clarity of it. Pray for your blessing to be upon us. As we part, we ask for help that the Spirit of God might take what has been said and what has been read and might bring it to hearts. We ask for this. We give thanks for the Lord Jesus in his worthy and precious name. Amen. Our final verse tonight, or hymn tonight rather, will be number 310. 310. <clears throat>